came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 6th of July. 2018. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And today our feature interview is with Dr. Natasha Hurley-Walker, astrophysicist and multi-award winning astronomer. And that's followed by university toxicology lecturer, amateur astronomer and astrophotographer, Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame, who will tell us what's up doc, what's up in the evening, night and morning skies for the next two weeks. He takes us on an astronomical tangent and we finish up with some Astrophys News highlights featuring the latest discoveries in this golden age of astronomy and space science. Now let's cross to Perth in Australia to speak with Dr Natasha. Hello, Natasha. Hello, Brendan. Today we are speaking with Dr. Natasha Hurley-Walker, who is a galactic and extragalactic MWA survey scientist who earned her PhD in radio astronomy at the University of Cambridge and is currently a Curtin Early Career Research Fellow who helped to commission the low-frequency SKA precursor radio telescope, the Murchison Widefield Array, the MWA, located in outback Western Australia. Today, we will hear about some of her amazing research projects, including her all-sky survey of 300,000 galaxies and her Gleamoscope app. Last year, she was named the West Australian Tall Poppy Scientist of the Year, and right now we congratulate her for just being recognised as one of the five brightest science communicators in Australia for 2018. Congratulations, Dr. Natasha. Thanks so much, Brendan. So, before you tell us about your amazing research and involvement with the world's largest radio astronomy project, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Natasha, and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place, and did you have dark skies in your backyard? So actually, I grew up in the US. I know you probably can't tell from my accent now, which is a mix of uh, British and Australian. But I grew up in Houston, Texas, and it was really fascinating there because I had access to the Johnson Space Center. So I got to see some of the fantastic space exploration technology that was available uh, in the 1990s. So I got to see a Saturn V and a space shuttle. I got to go to summer space camp and operate in a replica mission control 
I think it was one of the original mission controls, but uh, no longer currently in use. Uh, so that was really fun. That was very inspiring. Um, and I have to say also, I'm a big Star Trek nerd. <laughs> Love Star Trek. Maybe not so much the most recent reboots, but the next generation will always have a special place in my heart. So I think that those two things put together really inspired me to have an interest in the universe and how we as humans can explore it. As for the dark skies, growing up in Houston, no, not really. The northern hemisphere sky is quite disappointing. And, you know, living in a humid, cloudy suburb uh, outskirts of Houston, um, not really. I'd be lucky if I saw maybe 10 stars in a, in a night. So I guess perhaps that might be a reason why I never thought of just using your, your, your eyes or just using an optical telescope. From the very beginning, I've always been aware that We've been using very powerful radio telescopes, very powerful X-ray telescopes, very interesting different ways of looking at the universe than, uh, than being just out in your backyard. Okay. Well, tell us a little about your early school days and your early ambitions, and did those ambitions change? Sure. So I was really super interested in the universe, but when you're a child, you're fairly unfocused. You just want to know everything that you possibly can. And I actually was really interested in genetics and biochemistry, and that was sort of where my studies in uh, high school tended to lead me. I did um, studies in mathematics, physics, biology, and chemistry, because I couldn't really decide which way I wanted to explore the universe. Uh, but it's, it's very true, the old adage, um, absence makes the heart grow fonder, <laughs> and um, you really don't know what you want until it's gone. So I went to university to study biology and biochemistry, but within a week, I just felt that there was something wrong. I was spending my days pipetting one clear liquid into a tube containing another <laughs> clear liquid and memorizing parts of plants. And it just didn't seem fulfilling. I didn't feel like I was exploring why the universe was the way it was. So I had a difficult conversation with my tutors and I switched to physics. Uh, with a uh, major in astrophysics, and I just absolutely loved it. Uh, finally, I felt where I was where I wanted to be. I was really beginning to understand why the universe was the way it was. And of course, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And so I'm still studying today. I'm still no closer to answering those questions, but I'm really enjoying the journey. Very good, and a nice Joni Mitchell quote back there too. Now... Mm -hmm. Your first undergraduate degree was at the University of Bristol in the UK, and then you joined the Summer Astronomy Program at the famous Jodrell Bank Observatory near Manchester, and enjoyed the experience so much that you continued your research project for your master's degree. Can you tell us what a pulsar is and how you discovered a previously unknown one there? Right, so I was working with some wonderful pulsar astronomers called Dunk Lorimer and Michael Kramer, and they really showed me the ropes on pulsar astronomy. So a pulsar is a very rapidly rotating neutron star with an extremely strong magnetic field, and it has these beams of emission that come out the axis of the magnetic field, uh, sort of at the top and bottom of the neutron star. But the rotation axis of the neutron star is often misaligned to the magnetic field axis of the neutron star. And what this means is that if you're looking at the neutron star, 
the pole of the, the magnetic field sometimes sweeps across your field of view. And so you see a little blip as the jet crosses your, your eyes now, or your radio telescope, of course. Yep. Now, these things are spinning incredibly quickly. They're spinning from once or twice a second up to uh, several, uh, with a period of only a few milliseconds. Yep. So they're spinning very quickly, and they cause these little radio pulses. So I was given, as a third-year student, a huge filing cabinet <laughs> full of tapes <laughs> where the Parkes Radio Telescope, obviously based down here in Australia, had for something along the period of 1995 to about 1999 been observing a globular cluster uh, called 47 Toucanet pretty much whenever the telescope wasn't in use. It was just doing general pulsar recording with the hopes that maybe one day someone would have a chance to look at these tapes. So it was very much a, you know, back of the storage closet, all right, here you go, here's a fun project, see if you can find a pulsar. So they had given me all of the individual pieces of software, but it was my first experience where I needed to write a pipeline to put the data tape into the reader, to extract the data off of there, to put it onto a temporary holding space, to run all of the analysis software, and then, of course, generate results and look at them. So I went through, I think, about 120 tapes, each of which was maybe 20 gigabytes, which... I think in sort of the early 2000s, was a reasonable big data challenge. Nowadays, of course, you could put that all on a thumb drive. Yep. But anyway, eventually, I looked through, I'd looked through all the tapes. I'd come up with a fancy image analysis tool so I could look through all of the images very quickly and decide whether they were candidates. And I found zero pulsars. And I was writing up my master's thesis uh, on the complete lack of pulsars. Um, <laughs> And then I just thought, you know, there's that one last bit of data that I haven't had a chance to look at. I'll just quickly run through. So it was about 10 p.m. the day before the thesis was due. And I just looked at maybe a handful more images, maybe 100 more images. And boom, right there. Nice pulse. Beautiful pulse profile of this, uh, this pulsar. It was on for maybe 20 minutes <laughs> out of four years of data. Uh. And of course, it was the last place I looked. So I frantically reran all the analysis of all the other tapes to see if I could find more images of this pulsar or more uh, instances of this pulsar. Uh, and I found one other very faint detection. So I quickly rewrote my master's thesis, pulled a bit of an all-nighter. And uh, as a result, that, that thesis won a, a project award at the, the University of Bristol. So that was very nice. And I think nowadays I would be much more in favor of writing a quick paper on it. But um, at the time as an undergrad, that would have been, that was quite intimidating. That is beautiful. And then you were accepted for a PhD position at the University of Cambridge. There, as part of a small team of students, scientists and engineers, you helped to commission a new radio telescope and perform some of its first science observations. Can you tell us about that instrument, please, and give us an idea of what an interferometer is? Sure. So... The previous observations I was talking about with pulsar astronomy, we were just using parks in one really big sensitive dish yep. and using a very high time resolution in order to pick up those pulsar pulses. But if you want to get a higher resolution on the sky, the resolution of your telescope is dictated by the diameter of its dish. Now, that's fine when you're at higher frequencies. You can build a reasonably um, large dish and you can get wonderful resolution on the sky. 
at radio frequencies, and especially the lower frequencies, you know, gigahertz to megahertz, the size of the dish you'd need to build would be so large that you wouldn't be able to steer it. Some very large uh, dishes include the Arecibo Observatory and the recently constructed FAST radio telescope in China. And those are actually inside volcanic caldera and giant valleys. And then the secondary reflector is what's steered. So there's just a fundamental limit on how big you can make a dish. So a clever way of building a radio telescope that gives you the high resolution of a big dish, but means that it's a tractable engineering challenge, is to build an interferometer. So in this technology, multiple dishes are put out over a, a large area, and the longest distance between two dishes gives you your resolution of the telescope. And you combine all of the signals from all of the dishes together in a correlator, and then you perform, well, hopefully, you perform a Fourier transform of the data, do some tidying up, and you have an image of the sky. So the telescope that I was working with is called the ArcMinute Microkelvin Imager, and it was actually two different interferometric arrays, one with sensitivity to uh, large-ish scales on the sky of a few arc minutes, hence the name Arc Minute. And we were looking for the imprint of galaxy clusters on the background, cosmic microwave background radiation. It's quite a cool thing called the Sonia Zeldovich effect. The other array was used to find out all of the radio sources. It had a higher resolution, and this effect could be contaminated by foreground radio sources. So we would use the higher resolution array to pick those out. So uh, the two telescopes were not online when I first started in in Cambridge, and it took a couple of years to bring them all uh, fully online. But I learned a tremendous amount about commissioning, about writing software, about doing early science when you're not really sure day to day whether your telescope is going to work. And it was really, really a very cool learning experience. That is just fabulous now. There's obviously so much material in there, and we will get back to the science again in a minute, but could you just tell us now a little bit about your move to Australia and how that came about, please? Sure. So I was interested in leaving Cambridge after having done my whole PhD there. Uh, Unfortunately, the timing of my PhD was somewhat unfortunate. I finished in um, about 2009, And, of course, the global financial crisis was in full swing. So different governments reacted to that in different ways. And very fortunately for me, Australia had the idea that they would build themselves out of the GFC, that they would invest in innovation, in science, and attract people to work in Australia. So when I was just finishing up, there was this initiative called the Super Science Fellows Initiative, which was designed to attract PhD students from overseas to do early science postdoctoral studies in Australia. And there was one in particular that caught my eye uh, that was to work on the Murchison Widefield Array, which is a low-frequency SKA precursor. Now, I didn't know much about low-frequency radio astronomy, but I did know that we were all looking forward to the arrival of the Square Kilometre Array. And that will operate over two different telescopes, one at low frequency and one at high frequency. And I was very happy to work on either, but it was very exciting you know, to me to move to Australia. And so I downshifted in frequency. I went from 15 gigahertz down to 150 megahertz. And I 
moved many tens of degrees latitude further south and yep took up one of these super science positions to help commission that telescope that's just fabulous so after that you're at Curtin as an early career research fellow you've got two little ones and your home is in Perth West Australia and along with your work on the MWA can you tell us about the design of those tiles of spider antennas please what frequency are they targeting can they be steered and will their data be used for lots of different research areas Sure. So the Murchison Widefield Array is one of several telescopes around the world targeting the detection of the epoch of reionization, which is a period in the universe where the very first star switched on. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about preliminary detection of an era just before that in a minute, but I'll tell you a bit more about the MWA first. So the design of the MWA is very much uh, aimed at making that detection of the EOR it has uh, relatively small tiles. So now let me backtrack a little bit. Okay. Yep. The MWA's design is targeted at detecting that EOR signal. So the very first most important thing is that it's located in a radio quiet region. Yep. So the epoch of reionization should result in a signal that's about 150 megahertz, maybe 180, propagating throughout the entire universe. And those frequencies, of course, are what we use here on Earth to transmit radio waves um, via FM and AM radio. So we needed to locate the MWA in a very, very radio quiet area. So it's in the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory, and it it is the most radio quiet observatory in the world. Now, the antennas themselves are optimized for picking up those frequencies, so they operate between about 70 and 300 megahertz. Unfortunately, we can't do much about satellites overhead. So there are some frequencies which we do find it very hard to observe at because there's just so many satellites using those as communication. So that's in the sort of 250 megahertz range. But uh, between 70 and 240, the, the bands are very clear. And those little spider antennas are actually tremendously sensitive and can pick up all sorts of signals from the universe. How we steer them is slightly complex. We use what's called a beamformer. So the antennas are arranged in a 4 by 4 grid. So there's 16 antennas on every tile, we call them. And if you imagine a light signal coming in as it's if you are looking straight down on a 4 by 4 tile, then the signal would hit all of the elements of the tile at exactly the same time. So that's fine. That means that by default, the telescope is pointing straight up. Now, if I were to imagine coming at the telescope from the side, so maybe 45 degrees elevation, if you imagine a wavefront of light coming at the telescope, it's going to hit some of the antennas that lie on one side of the tile first, and then the next set of antennas, then the next, and finally the last row. So effectively, there is some delay between the wavefront of light hitting the different antennas. So what we can cleverly do is actually add a little bit of delay to the signal path that receives the radio signals for each antenna. And by controlling the amount of delay, we effectively control where the telescope points. 
And that's fantastic because it means instead of steering a huge dish and moving it and having to maintain gears and gearboxes and power it and so forth, a tiny circuit board uh, about the size of a laptop, and probably nowadays you can make it even smaller, can control where this telescope is pointing almost instantaneously. And that gives us this tremendous reaction speed. So there are many different science programs that the MWA is engaged in. The detection of the EOR is the first one, but there are also lots of other programs and detecting transient objects, like counterparts to gravitational waves or counterparts to uh, FRBs or the detection of FRBs themselves. There's also understanding our own sun, so looking at very high time resolution and high frequency resolution images of the sun and how that changes in the radio. And then closest to my own heart is the fact that the telescope has a very wide field of view and it can point very quickly, means we can survey the whole sky very, very quickly. And so that's mainly the research that I've been working on over the last few years. And that leads us on to all of this MWA data, petabytes, I imagine, that enabled you to develop your Gleamoscope app so the whole world can easily see what our amazing galaxy looks like in every wavelength. Can you tell us about your all-sky survey and how that project evolved and how you went on to develop that app that's available on everyone's computer, no matter what operating system they use. Right. So the MWA uh, conducted this survey, the Galactic and Extragalactic All-Sky MWA survey, around the time that I was just finishing up my Super Science Fellowship. And I applied to do a fellowship at Curtin to specifically work on this survey, uh, really develop it, run the data through supercomputers and produce images. So I was successful in that fellowship application, and I was basically given free reign to create this wonderful image of the whole sky. And I worked with some really clever people from many different institutions. Uh, The MWA is an international project with partners in um, New Zealand, India, the US, uh, and now recently Japan and China. So I worked with about 15 other postdocs and students to develop Um, the pipelines and to overcome the processing challenges of turning this very strange data that was pouring off the instrument um, into beautifully calibrated images of the sky. I could go on about all the different challenges that we solved, but they're mostly technical. Essentially, at the end of it, it took about 2 million CPU hours to process about half a petabyte of data, and that created around 40,000 images, which I stitched together using various other software tools to create this all-sky image. And as I mentioned earlier, the MWA observes over quite a wide band between about 70 and 300 megahertz. The survey, Gleam, observed between 70 and 230. And I was able to separate that into multiple different, essentially, radio colors of the sky. So traditional radio surveys, you would only get one measurement at one frequency. And so you would just know that a source was there and it had a certain brightness. The nice thing about using the Gleam data, you could have up to about 20,000 measurements, but they would be very, very low signal to noise. So the way I processed it, we ended up with 20 uh, measurements of every single source and indeed every single location on the sky. 
And the images that I've sort of created for people to, to look at and uh, to analyze the universe, I've created them so that they are radio color. Like I've translated those radio frequencies into optical color so that people can, can see them. So for instance, in the ones that most people be familiar with, the red is 72 to 103 megahertz, the green is 103 to 134 megahertz, the blue is 139 to 170 megahertz. Three-fifths of the server, I didn't use the top two bands because there's just so much bandwidth. It's wonderful. So that creates these really gorgeous, colorful images in the radio, which really hadn't been seen before. The nice thing about the MWA as well is it has what's called short baselines as well as long. So I mentioned earlier that the resolution of your telescope is given by the longest distance between its comprising antennas. But that only gives you one spatial scale on the sky. It, you, in order to build up a proper picture of the sky, you need all of the spatial scales. And the nice thing about the MWA's design was that it had many, many short um, baselines as well, because those are the, the spatial scale on which uh, the epoch of realization is supposed to appear. But that also makes a really beautiful imaging technique for the galaxy, which has all sorts of supernova remnants, H2 regions, uh, beautiful synchrotron filaments and so forth. So when you look at that gleam image, you're seeing our own Milky Way in this wonderful, beautiful detail um, with all these little soap bubbles and uh, it's just absolutely stunning. All of the little dots around it are not stars like you would see in an optical image, but distant radio galaxies are up to billions of light years away. And so the color coming from that wide bandwidth is important for studying things in our own galaxy because it allows us to discriminate between different objects and also for studying these distant radio galaxies because it tells us about the physics of what's going on in the supermassive black holes that produce the radio emission. Unbelievable. So the app was actually developed really as a last-minute thing. So as a professional astronomer or an academic astronomer, all of my effort goes into writing papers. But once I'd created these beautiful images, I realized they were just so stunning. And I really wanted to share them with the rest of the world. So I looked online to see if I could find anything that would be relatively easy to adapt to create a viewer so that people could look at Gleam in all of its radio technicolor beauty. And I found the Chromoscope website, which was actually developed by a colleague of mine that I had known during my time in Cambridge. And their code is uh, really available. You can, you can download it. So I sent him a quick email, downloaded the code, and then figured out how to turn the Gleam images into the specific tiling that is required by Chromoscope. And I did this at about 3 a.m. a few days before the, <laughs> the paper was supposed to come out. I guess there's just something I find very creative about those early morning hours. <laughs> So I managed to get it all working, and that is the Gleamoscope website. And the nice thing is that Chromoscope already provided uh, a few other different all-sky surveys, say in the X-ray, in the gamma ray, in the infrared, and so forth. So that makes a really beautiful um, all-wavelength, all-sky viewer. And um, you know, everyone's welcome to go and have a play, both with Gleamoscope and the original Chromoscope. So I'd, I'd done all that, um, and then a couple of days later, so again, really the 11th hour before the paper was due to come out, I was chatting to my husband, and he's an Android developer, 
And I said, do you know, how hard would it be to put Gleam onto a phone? And he said, that's probably really easy because we can use the Google Cardboard framework. And then it's just a matter of creating the images in the right format. So he set up the sort of back-end framework to connect the images into Google Cardboard. And I went away and worked out how to get the images into the right format. And uh, I even, because Google, Google Cardboard supports a 3D view, I even wrote a little bit of Python to create a fake parallax for yep. the images. Because, of course, they appear 2D to us. All of the radio waves are coming from things that are so far away, they have zero measurable parallax. Yep. But when you've got the uh, Google Cardboard viewer on, I created it so that the Milky Way appears to be just that little bit closer and all of those radio galaxies appear to be at slightly random distances further away. And that way I thought, you know, if anybody goes to all of the trouble to putting this into a Google Cardboard viewer, then they can see the, the real truth of the matter, which is that these radio galaxies are very far away. Um, otherwise, your, your brain kind of tells you that they're in the foreground, that they're stars. I thought that was a nice little touch that people would appreciate. So the app and Gleamoscope have both kind of taken on a life of their own. And now when people think Gleam, they often think of those. But um, astronomers, you know, we mostly want the, the original data and the catalogue and the paper. Indeed. And I've had a wonderful play with them. Thanks, Natasha. Now, one of the themes you hinted at earlier, and it's a theme we've talked about many times on this show, is the issue of big data. Can you describe what the Pawsey Centre is? And what technology you use there to make sense of your data streams? Or should we rightly call them data tsunamis? Yes, I think data tsunamis is far more appropriate than data streams. They really are quite out of hand. With the configuration of the MWA that I used, every observation that I looked at, which was about two minutes long, was about 40 gigabytes. And to put that into context, that's about a whole Blu-ray the whole Blu-ray with special features and all the interviews every two minutes. So Gleam comprises about 28 nights of observing with, you know, a, a Blu-ray every two minutes. So it's a huge stack of Blu-rays, about half a petabyte of data. And of course, Gleam was just 28 days out of a telescope that's been operating since 2013. So there are actual many petabytes in the data archive now. And that process of observing and then curating and saying, no, no, actually, these, these data, we, we, we're never going to get around to these, um, is something that we have a full-time data manager working on. So the Pawsey Centre is this brilliant facility here in WA, which hosts uh, all of our data at the moment um, on these enormous tape archives, which have a little robot that you command, oh, I'd like to go and get this observation. And you can actually watch the little robot arm zoom off, grab a tape, and then put it in the reader. That's, it's tremendous fun to watch. And the Pawsey also hosts some of the best supercomputers, maybe not just in the Southern Hemisphere, but in the world. And I've had the opportunity to use many of those on my research. And uh, the Gleam data took about 2 million CPU hours to process. So yeah, it's, it's a serious amount of data. And I'd say we are just about there with the technical solutions you know, with the hardware, with the software and so forth. But the human effort required to make sense of the data is, is really tremendous. So we had a, a, a team working on the Glean data. And, you know, to visually inspect all of that data, 
it's just totally overwhelming. I, I still don't think that all of the 40,000 images that we came up with have actually been looked at because it's just tremendous. So I actually have a student now who uh, is writing a machine learning algorithm to see if she can identify which data are good, which data are bad, which data need to be reprocessed in certain ways. And then hopefully that will be uh, robust enough that we can start to turn it loose um, on future observations. So we are working hard to try and deal with these data tsunamis, but things like the SKA are just going to make the problem uh, even more challenging. Fantastic. Thank you. Now, before we move back to some more personal topics, what are some of the research areas you're working on at the moment? I understand some discussion may be embargoed because of upcoming journal publications, but what can you tell us about at the moment? Sure. So I mentioned earlier about the MWA being able to see wonderful things in our own galaxy, in our own Milky Way. And um, something that it's really perfect at finding is supernova remnants. So a supernova remnant is what remains after a star has gone supernova. The outer shell of the star is cast off and it, it moves out into the interstellar plasma extremely rapidly and it collects a lot of material. The magnetic field of the star is also cast off and as all this material cascades out into space, the ionized atoms and the electrons and the magnetic fields interact together to produce synchrotron radio emission. And because of the the fact that the star is exploding in space, it's essentially a spherical kind of emission. So when we look at it, we see this beautiful shell out in space. Now, as the supernova remnant gets older, it gets larger and it also gets fainter. And so most of the existing surveys have detected supernova remnants, which are either very bright or fairly compact. But we know that there must have been remnants from even older stars in our galaxy. But of course, those shells have become so old and so faint that it's actually very hard to detect them. Now, the MWA is really optimized for this because as well as being able to detect the right scale of structures due to the short baselines, those structures are also still relatively bright at the lower frequencies where the MWA observes. At the higher frequencies, they're just totally invisible. All of the electrons have aged so they're not producing any high-frequency radio emission anymore. So the current thing that I'm working on is to find all of the supernova remnants in a region of the galactic plane, and um, I'm making flux density measurements for about uh, 250 known remnants. Um, And just by eye, by painstaking searching and so forth, I found about 20 new ones. So that's really exciting because there, there are not very many known. There's only about 500 known in total. Um, and we divided up the galactic plane into a few different regions. So I found 20, a collaborator has also found 20. And so we're sort of increasing the number of known ones by about 10%. And I think with more data, we could probably do even better, find even fainter objects. But disentangling all of that emission in such a complicated region is quite hard. So at the moment, yeah, writing software to do and, yeah, finding these ancient supernova remnants. Awesome. I can hear the excitement in your voice. So exciting. Now... Science research and outreach go hand in hand these days. And we noted earlier that you've just been recognised as one of Australia's top science communicators. Now, I'm not going to ask you to reprise your Gleam song that's available on video, but it is a clear indication of your passion for science communication. What can you tell us about this latest award? And can you tell us about your passion for outreach and what you do and why you do it so comprehensively 
So the award was the ABC's uh, top five scientists for 2018. Obviously, I'm not all top five. I'm just one of them. Uh, and the other four are other brilliant people in um, a whole range of different fields, refugee studies, um, health, uh, and so forth. Really exciting. And uh, yeah, it's because well, it's a little bit of a strange award because you're recognized for having done some excellent science communication. Um, but the prize is it's not a cash award. It's to go to the ABC and get even better at science communication. Um, so to work with some of the top science journalists at the ABC and try and produce something as well, you know, maybe a podcast, maybe a, a short radio show, maybe a short TV spot, maybe something interactive online. That's super exciting for me. Um, I'm always looking for ways to become a better communicator. I, I, as for why I do it, well, I think it's, it's absolutely a responsibility. We are paid for by the, the taxpayer. A little tiny fraction of everybody's taxes goes towards supporting astronomy. And we really ought to be giving back to the community um, that supports us. And I've heard so many wonderful, uh, so much wonderful feedback from um, people that I've shown my research to. You know, you've inspired me. You've shown me our place in the universe. Wow, my mind is blown. All of these things. And I think we should absolutely be telling people what we do. And, you know, essentially they're paying for it, so they should see it. So if I can do that in an entertaining and informative way, um, then I'm very, very, very happy. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to taking up the ABC residency and getting even better at it. Fantastic. Well, I've been sitting here with a smile on my face uh, since this interview has started, Natasha. Now, the mic is all yours, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges that we face in science, in science funding, in education, in equity and diversity, workplace flexibility policies, outreach, our quest for the knowledge, uh, our quest for space. The mic's all yours. Wow, I feel very excited. Oh, my goodness. I could talk for hours. Right, let me pick a single topic, perhaps two. And okay. you can pick one maybe later. Okay. I've been, I've, been, I've been agonizing about this, which one I would talk about. So, right. Okay. So I think one of the things that frustrates me most about the model of science funding at the moment is that the, uh, there are a tremendous number of really excellent researchers in Australia who apply for funding um, from the Australian Research Council. Yeah. And, uh, you know, projects are funded, wonderful research is done. But the fact of the matter is that it takes a very long time to prepare an application. Essentially in February, March, everybody in Australia, all the scientists are all working on their proposals, but only a few percent are actually funded. And the estimates of the lost time that this causes is on the order of three human centuries of effort. Oh. Every year is lost just writing proposals. And when you look at the breakdown of the proposals, if you were just to do a very, very quick analysis, you'd say about two-thirds of these are fantastic and should be funded. Yeah. And maybe a third could do with a little bit more thought. So a, a, a system they use in New Zealand so uh, instead of having everybody write a sort of 100-page proposal and all the supporting documents and all of that, everybody writes a very short proposal, you know, maybe a few pages, three or four, 
Um, and the, there is a first stage where those are assessed. And they just take, you know, the top 25% and then say, right, you guys continue, write Longer proposals and then we'll assess. Whereas everybody else has said, no, okay, just try again next year. Yeah. And that frees up a lot of your time. Because instead of trying year after year uh, and writing a, a huge amount and, you know, thereby taking away from your real research time, only you use a little bit of time and if it doesn't work out, well, you haven't lost that much. And I think that would be a really sensible system to bring in here because um, it's just the, speaking as someone who's failed to win a grant a few years in a row now, yeah. I would rather have just been told no at the, the page two stage rather than spending a long time polishing the application. So that would certainly be a way of making um, science funding much more efficient. Um, some people even go so far as to suggest that you take the top 80% because those are all probably brilliant proposals and then you just randomly fund them. You just pick you know, a random 10% of those and fund them. Because the differences between the very, very, very best application and the, you know, half, the, well, the one in the middle of the pack is actually almost infinitesimal because, you know, researchers are really, really, really wonderful and they care a lot and they come up with very, very clever projects. So, you know, it is almost luck-based because the refereeing is done by a random jury and so just the way that different proposers, uh, different referees might wait a given proposal might lead to it being funded or not. So why not just make the whole thing random? Um, so that was prob that's probably my uh, top scientific frustration <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> is the sheer wasted time on proposals when everybody's coming up with such brilliant ideas. We're happy to spread the word. Okay. <laughs> so now we warmly invite listeners to follow at Colourful Cosmos on Twitter and at MWA Telescope on Twitter and Facebook. Check out Natasha's fabulous Gleam app. It's freely available for Android devices in the Google Play Store and on both iOS and PCs, the web-based app at gleamoscope.icra.org. Works beautifully on all devices. Is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future, Natasha? Well, like I say, I work with some really tremendous people. So uh, aside from my own uh, supernova remnants, which should be coming out sometime later this year, along with better galactic plane images, um, there's all sorts of great stuff going on here. So there's lots of follow-up observations of transient events. Um, there's uh, studies of the polarization in the radio sky. There's studies of the ionosphere and how that changes the flux density of sources. There's all sorts of cool stuff coming out of the MWA. So um, definitely follow that uh, at MWA Telescope. And, uh, yeah, keep an eye out for our cool research. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Natasha Hurley-Walker. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. That was amazing. Now, let's cross over to Adelaide and have What's Up, Doc, where we speak with Dr. Ian, astroblog Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's things going? Very well, thanks, Ian. How's it going over in Adelaide? Rather cold, but at least cold for Adelaide. I'm <laughs> sure it's much colder where you are. Yes, well, we've had some uh, single-figure days and some minus threes overnight, so 
Yeah, it's a chilly part of the year. And our friends over in Glasgow, over in Scotland, just had a 30 degree day and it's panic stations. <laughs> oh, the poor babies, the poor babies. I'm just. Okay, then, Ian. Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? What's up in the sky this week? All five planets is up in the sky this week. Now, I know I've been saying this for the past couple of programs, but you'll be able to actually see all five of the bright planets together. Starting from when this is broadcast, Mars is rising just as Mercury is setting, although you'll need to have a really clear level horizon to see it, see them because of the setting rising thing. But by the end of the week, uh, Mercury will be, at least from Australia, Mercury will be quite high in the uh, twilight and Mars will be rising well before uh, Mercury sets. So I'll be able to see all five of the planets together. Now, if you're in the northern hemisphere, sorry, Mercury doesn't really get high enough to, uh, to be able to see very easily. But if you do happen to have a, a nice western horizon with an ocean view, you should be able to still catch Mercury before it sets uh, with Mars beginning to rise. And as well, the three of the brighter planets, Venus, Jupiter and Mars, are now all over magnitude minus two, which is, you know, makes them really bright, but they're incredibly obvious in the sky now. So uh, it's, a, it's a good week to start planet watching. We've got lots of bright um, planets. We've got all the bright planets in the sky, and they're all doing quite interesting things. Very good. Now, for, uh, for us in the Southern Hemisphere, Mercury is its best in the evening uh, at this time. For the Northern Hemisphere, Mercury it doesn't really get too high above the horizon, which is a little bit sad, because on the 4th, we're going to see something quite interesting. On the 4th of July, you'll see Mercury pass through the outer edges of the Beehive Cluster. Now, we saw this occur with Venus uh, last month. But uh, with Mercury, because Mercury, it, it, although bright, it's not so bright that it overwhelms the faint stars of the Beehive Cluster. So uh, through binoculars or through a modest telescope, you should be able to get some uh, nice images of um, uh, Mercury. If you're feeling like watching over the next few days you should, through binoculars, you should be able to see Mercury creep up towards the uh, Beehive Cluster before uh, passing through. And then for a couple of days after, Mercury being at its closest, it'll, it'll uh, be still in the binocular field, so it'll be quite nice to watch them go apart. And later on in the week, we'll have the crescent moon visiting. But before that happens, last month Venus's encounter with the beehive was nice, but Venus was so bright it drowned out the, the faint stars of the beehive. Now, but if you've uh, been watching over the past few nights, you will see Venus heading towards another bright star. This is the bright star Regulus, the brightest star in Leo the Lion. Yep. And but by the 10th, Venus and Regulus will be very close together. It will look uh, very nice. In binoculars, it's, it's, it'll, they'll be close. In a telescope, you'll be able to see Venus's disk quite nicely, but Regulus will just be a, a bright star-like object. You can get a, a decent photograph of it, but they, again, they're going to be very bright, so you may have to, to fiddle around a bit to, if you're using filters so that you'll be able to get Venus 
as disk and regulus as a star. So it's, it's worthwhile uh, looking at. Then the moon visits. So on the 15th of July, uh, Mercury will be uh, close to the crescent moon. Not close enough to fit into a telescope like these, unfortunately, but they'll be close together in, in binoculars. But uh, at this time, uh, Mercury is in about half moon phase. So that will be quite nice to look at in, in, uh, in a telescope. And it's also going to be high enough above the horizon to most telescopes in the southern hemisphere to be able to see it uh, above without anything getting in the way. Then on the following evening, the 16th, it's Venus's turn to be close to the crescent moon. And they will look, again, very beautiful. And they'll be uh, close enough so that you can see them together in binoculars. And if you bring this uh, in a telescope, it will uh, be in, again, a half-moon phase. So that will be quite nice to look at in, in a telescope. If you've got a ultraviolet filter, you might be able to even see some details in Venus's atmosphere, but if you've got the normal sets of astronomical filters, Venus will, will, will just look like a very bright uh, half-moon disk without any serious features on it. Very nice. But Jupiter is still looking beautiful. It's uh, very easy to see in the early evening sky. Its bands are easily visible with a small telescope, and once again, its uh, moons are continually uh, dancing about and you'll be able to see transits and eclipses and occultations quite easily. The problem with all the bright planets being in the sky is it means that it makes astronomy nights very long. So you can start off looking at Venus in the early evening just as uh, astronomical twilight occurs, then move on to Jupiter, which is still high enough to be seen above uh, the turmoil of the horizon, then move over to Saturn. Now, Saturn was at opposition last week, but it's still big and bright and beautiful. Uh, rings are almost at its widest. They were at full width last year, and now they're beginning to close up again. But even so, if you're looking at uh, Saturn's rings, they're going to be really beautiful, really uh, bright and wide in a telescope. If you've got a modest telescope, you should be able to see the Cassini division quite easily. And the shadow of, the, uh, of Saturn uh, on the rings itself. Uh, even in a small telescope, we'll be able to see uh, the rings quite easily and some of the colour changes in the rings uh, and the, dark, the darkness of the polar caps, maybe even the pale equatorial band. The moon Titan is just bright enough to be able to be seen in binoculars, but it can be quite difficult when, when uh, Titan is uh, close. You'd need a fairly good set of binoculars, say at least 10 by 50s, and then you can only see Titan when it's at its furthest from Saturn, really. So Titan uh, in binoculars, in this week, the best date looking at Titan in binoculars is the 8th of July. Of course, uh, Vesta is still binocular bright. Uh, if you are in the depths of the countryside, you should be able to see Vesta with your native eye. It's now uh, far away from most of the index objects we're using to uh, uh, to observe it but this week it will be above the triple nebula uh, if you've been following over, over the uh, previous weeks uh, and you know where it is it's quite easy, easy to find uh, but now you'll have to sweep up from the triple nebula and starting to head into territory where there's other objects to confuse it with but if you watch over the uh, Google field watch over the coming days, you'll be able to see Vesta move from day to day, and it'll be quite obvious which one it is. Fantastic. 
So what else have we got up there, Ian? Well, what we have is Mars. Mars is currently a, a rising uh, not too long uh, after astronomical twilight falls. And Mars is, uh, is now incredibly bright. It's really obvious. It's currently the brightest thing above the eastern horizon. As I said, we now have three planets brighter than magnitude minus two, and that's Venus, Jupiter, and Mars. Later on this month, Mars will uh, be in opposition when it's closest to Earth, and this is a very favourable opposition. The other thing that I haven't mentioned, of course, is that Earth is at helium on the 7th when it's furthest from the Sun, and Mars will be at its closest to the Sun not too uh, shortly after that. So when Earth is its furthest from the Sun and Mars is at its closest to the Sun, we have very good oppositions. Mars will be at its best since 2003. It will be quite easy to observe even modest telescopes. And theoretically, you should be able to pick out some nice details of Mars if it wasn't for the giant global fanning dust storm that is currently obscuring everything on the planet and making opportunity not phone home. So at the moment, Mars is in Capricornius. It's not near anything particularly interesting, it's, but it's, it's really bright, uh, very bright, very orange, very obvious. In binoculars, it will just look like a bright dot. But even in a small telescope, you'll be able to see a very definite disk. And if you follow it over the next few weeks, you'll see that disk visibly swell, unlike Jupiter and Saturn, where the, the difference in distance at opposition doesn't really make a huge difference to their, to their diameters. It makes a difference, but it's not really huge. Mars, the difference is very visible, and you can see it swell visibly over the next few weeks. So if you haven't been looking at Mars for a telescope yet, I would suggest you start doing it now and enjoy the spectacle as Mars begins to swell and brighten. The best early in the morning. Again, if you're getting up just before sunrise, you can watch the twilight. You can watch Mars dominate the twilight as the light grows and grows. Very good. Now, do you have a tangent for us this weekend? Yes, I do. Based on the global dust storm, I'd like to talk about sand dunes. Yep. Sand dunes have been in the news a bit at the moment. We found sand dunes on the most diverse objects. Uh, of course, there's sand dunes on Earth, but there's also sand dunes on Mars, and some of the sand dunes have been uh, uh, really beautiful in the uh, base of some of the craters. You can see these massive dunes marching on. Now, the dust on uh, Mars tends to be very quite fine, all kind of talcum powder. So even the thin atmosphere of Mars can loft it up and blow it around. Although you may have seen a recent announcement from NASA about a, finding a blue sand dune in the crater. And what this is, is that a dune made of very much finer material, uh, which has a big colour contrast between it and the rest of, uh, of the crater. The blue is a misnomer. It's a side effect of the uh, how they set up the filters. And so the colour is actually grey, not blue, but because Mars is so red, the, and their filter choices means that it looks blue compared to the background uh, Mars sand, which is kind of cute. But if you look at uh, a lot of the images of, uh, of the Martian dunes, you'll see that a number of them uh, have uh, darker material which is uh, being blown out as well. So you have the finer, finer red dunes, well, 
marching across the landscape with a fringe of darker colour, making them a really, uh, really stand out uh, against the surface of Mars. So with the uh, current global uh, dust storm, we may uh, see some changes in the dunes uh, that are being uh, imaged on Mars uh, when the dust finally settles and we can image again. But that's not all. There are sand dunes on Comet 67P, uh, and you'd have to wonder about this a bit because, after all, the, the comet doesn't actually have an atmosphere per se, uh, and it doesn't have really sand so much. The very fine grain material is actually a, a mixture of ice and hydrocarbons and a little bit of uh, what we would ordinarily call slip dust. But it's, it's, it's basically overgrown uh, tarry ice. Uh, but nonetheless, these uh, materials are, uh, are small enough that they can be locked by the uh, gas jets that occur on the, on the comet. And even in the tiny atmosphere of the comet, the gas jets can push these materials into dune-like structures. And that, that's, that's uh, pretty amazing. So it's, on, on Earth, sand, the sand is silicate sand. On Mars, the, the um, sand is a variety of different materials. On, uh, on Comet 67P, the sand is sort of icy tar. There's also sand on Titan. Wow. And there's sand dunes on Titan. And the sand dunes on Titan appear to be well, it, it's, it's a bit hard because the surface of Titan is mostly ice with a uh, covering of gooey uh, hydrocarbons that are synthesised from its methane atmosphere. And so people are wondering what the sand dunes are actually made of. What is the sand that makes up the, the uh, sands of Titan? And by examining the uh, spectral images of Titan uh, from back when Cassini was, uh, was still orbiting Saturn and also from some of the... Uh, the spectra that was taken by the Huygens lander, they decided the best thing, and, and doing some experiments in vacuum chambers at very cold temperatures, they decided the best thing that matches the sand grains is something called Titan Phylon. This is an organic mixture of polymerized methane with a bit of sulfur thrown in. These phylons form icy grains uh, which then um, become sand-like in uh, with uh, erosion and the wind of Titan. The Titan's atmosphere is quite uh, substantial, but the wind of Titan can then blow these sand grains into dune-like structures. So it's again very interesting. We've got these four different, very very different worlds, all with uh, sand dunes. But the sand on each of these worlds is very very different from each other. In fact, well, on um, on Comet 67P and on Titan, the, the sand isn't sand as we know it, but sort of a bit like an ice, a, a, a nice, a nice slushy um, uh, covered in tar. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Mind blowing, actually. It's really quite. You, know, you read about this, you go, that's really peculiar. <laughs> well, again, on Titan, it's got rivers of methane and uh, giant lakes of methane and. So a version of tar for sand isn't that sort of far away, really, is it? It makes sense. It, it makes sense. Gooey, gooey, possibly smelly sense, but it makes sense that <laughs> I, I can't imagine myself uh, putting down a blanket and saying myself on the uh, shores of a, 
of the sandy shores of a, um, a Titan lake anytime soon, though. You'd find it difficult to get a suntan there, Ian. Uh, you yeah, certainly would. <laughs> well, now's a very good time to invite people to follow ENF Musgrave on Twitter, and you can find his astro blog and the Southern Skywatch just by putting those terms into your favourite search engine. They'll come up as number one. And, of course, you can follow Astrophys on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrove. Uh, it, it, it is a pleasure. It is a pleasure. And then when next time we talk, talk, we'll talk about the uh, close approach of uh, Venus to Ceres, which would be uh, something interesting to, to watch in binoculars. Excellent. No worries. Okay, until then, we will catch you later, and I hope everyone has clear skies and uh, uh, they're not too boiling hot in the northern hemisphere and not freezing to death in the southern hemisphere. <laughs> okay, thank you, Ian. Good night, mate. Good night, Brandon. And to round up this show, here's our short astrophys news item. It's from a paper in Nature, as reported first by Astron, the Netherlands Institute for Radio Astronomy and Australia's Science Channel. Einstein's theory of relativity has passed its biggest test yet, when even phenomenally dense neutron stars fall like a feather. Einstein's theory of general relativity has faced its most extreme test yet, with a neutron star and two white dwarfs found to orbit together in agreement with his predictions, 1,000 times more exacting than ever before. A weak field test would see a feather and a hammer being dropped on the moon. They will both hit the surface at the same time, which is exactly what happened in the famous Apollo experiment by Commander David Scott at the end of the last Apollo 15 moonwalk. But theorists asked, would Einstein's general relativity hold true in the most extreme conditions in a strong gravitational field? The researchers from Astron, the Netherlands Institute for Radio Astronomy, led by lead author Anne Archibald and by Adam Dalla from Swinburne University and seven others from various research institutions around the world, found the perfect naturally occurring system for a strong field test. PSR J0337 plus 1715 is a tight binary system of a neutron star and white dwarf orbiting each other every 1.6 days, with a more distant second white dwarf orbiting this binary in a 327-day orbit. Critically, the timing of such pulsars is so regular that any changes can be interpreted as being due to the gravitational pull of another body. If general relativity still applies at these strong field scales, then the inner white dwarf and neutron star would be pulled towards the outer white dwarf star's orbit equally, so the pulsar signal would stay regular. However, if Einstein's laws no longer applied and some different theory of gravity was at play, the neutron star and inner white dwarf would fall towards the outer white dwarf at different rates, 
changing the shape of their orbits, turning it more into a wobble and changing the timing of the pulsar received on Earth. They said, We were able to measure this by looking at a neutron star alone, explains first author Anne Archibald. The neutron star, a millisecond pulsar, behaves like a clock. It rotates 366 times per second, and beams of radio waves rotate along with it. They sweep over the Earth at regular intervals, producing pulses like a cosmic lighthouse. We've used these radio pulses to track the motion of the neutron star. The team of astronomers followed the neutron star for six years using the Westerbork Synthesis Radio Telescope in the Netherlands, the Greenbank Telescope in West Virginia, US, and the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico, US. Studying the 27,000 pulsars collected, the astronomers found that the pulsars are all arriving within 30 nanoseconds of the timing predicted by general relativity. We can account for every single pulse of a neutron star since we began our observations, says Archibald, and we can tell its location to within a few hundred metres. That's a really precise track of where the neutron star has been and where it's going. If a neutron star fell differently from the white dwarf, the pulses would arrive at a different time than expected. Tests of this scale were not available to Einstein while developing general relativity, and yet it has held true. No doubt Einstein would be impressed by the experiment, but unsurprised by the result. See you in two weeks. Radio waves.